Chapter One of Abandoned by William Clark Russell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Abandoned by William Clark Russell. Chapter One The Wedding. Miss Lucretia Lane stood at the toilet glass in her bedroom in Cheapstow Place, Bayswater, dressing herself for her marriage. She was watched from the embrace of an armchair by a young lady who was to accompany her to the church and who was dressed for the solemnity. How? In a hat and jacket and skirt, for this was to be a very simple ceremony, and Miss Lucretia was putting on her hat and thrusting pins into it and toying with it as ladies do with their headgear when they adjust it, whilst her friends sat and watched her. Miss Lane was a handsome, tall, well-proportioned, finely molded young woman, aged twenty-four, with dark red hair, large shining brown eyes, a little Roman nose, a firm mouth with red lips, a throat of a rich whiteness, close-seated ears delicately tinted like certain beautiful shells, a low, square, tranquil brow, dark and clearly penciled eyebrows, white, ivory-bright, even teeth, rather small hands, the fingers long and nervous, and the nails so shaped that taking them with the ears, and a certain delicacy in the carving of the lineaments of her face, you would have guessed she had a strain of good old blood in her. The other girl, Miss Constance Ford, takes so small a part in this story that there is no occasion to say more about her than name her. You had better make haste, said Miss Ford. Do you know what the time is? I am certain that it was Major Stroud who knocked some minutes ago. What makes you linger and pause so? Don't you feel well, Lucretia? Lucretia turned her head slowly, brought her fine eyes to bear upon her friend, and said, with a slight frown and a note of temper, "'Don't tease me!' Miss Ford stepped to the window and looked out. It was Wednesday in September 1890. Villas over the way, dull sky, with shadows of fog looking like rain-clouds, hanging over the pointing fingers on the chimney-stacks. A piano-organ under the window began to play Old Robin Gray. Miss Ford started to sing. She sang audibly, with her face averted, and her eyes screwed into their corners upon Lucretia. My father argued, sir, my mother didn't speak, but she looked me in the face till my heart was like to break. They gied him my hand, but my heart was in the sea, and so old Robin Gray, he was good man to me. Lucretia went on fiddling with her hat. What ailed the girl? Was she going to be married to old Robin Gray? Was her heart in the sea? How should a young woman look while she is dressing, or being helped to dress, for her wedding? She is taking a momentous step. The event is the most significant that can happen to her in all her days. It is more heavily freighted with consequences than the circumstance of her birth. It is a harbor out of which she will sail into an ocean wider and more awful in its appeals to, its demands upon, her five mortal senses, than the imagined life into which the grave cradles, as the launch ship is cradled, the disembodied and therefore the functionless spirit. How should a young woman look, then, on the eve of her marriage? Not surely in the main, as Lucretia Lane looked. She was extremely fidgety. The rovings of her fingers were often aimless. She sometimes trembled. Several times Miss Ford had observed Lucretia's reflection in the glass talking to herself. It might have been suspected by a medical observer that had a strong man been rent with the mental conflict which was obviously raging in the heart and in the soul of Lucretia Lane, he would have sweated. Lucretia, not being a strong man, was suffering from the war within her after the manner of her sex. 
at least of those of them who cannot put down their foot and mean, though their heart break as they resolve, that their yea shall mean yes, and that their nay shall mean no. I think I had better go downstairs and tell them that you are coming in a minute, said Miss Ford. As she spoke, Mrs. Lane entered the room, a comely, clean little gentlewoman, aged about sixty, with the word neatness writ large on every turn of her, a trifle bustling with nerve as she entered in black silk, black lace, and jet cape, black bonnet with white feathers rather rakishly perched on a black comb, a woman of whom you might safely affirm that her bedroom would be a model of folded-up things, a woman to touch and adjust objects into symmetrical bearings, on whose bedroom mantelpiece, for example, the shepherd and the shepherdess would be exactly equidistance from the marble clock and the painted china candlesticks. She did not seem to observe her daughter's manner, mood, or bearing. Her mind was capable of dealing with one idea only at a time, and the idea that now possessed her was not the face of her daughter as the girl stood before the looking-glass putting on her hat. "'Not ready yet, Lucretia?' cried Mrs. Lane, who always gave her daughter the full pomp of her baptismal title. "'The Major is downstairs walking about with his watch in his hand. He thought he would be late, and actually ran a part of the way, and has scarcely got his breath yet. You know how impatient he is. All these little retired India men are, and irritable. I think we are most fortunate to have got him to give you away. He is afraid the clergyman won't wait if he's kept. How long are you likely to be, dear?' Two minutes,' answered Lucretia, without turning her eyes from the mirror into which she was directing their beauty and brilliance, and which was reflecting a countenance glacial in expression. Under that sort of ice of reserve, what a vast number of disagreeable and dangerous properties may be floating. "'I'll go downstairs and keep the major company,' said Miss Ford. And as she passed Mrs. Lane, she whispered, "'Lucretia seems very uncomfortable.' "'You are quite happy at heart, my darling, I hope,' said the mother, getting hold of that idea and none other, and approaching her daughter to look at her reflection in the toilet-glass. "'I cannot make haste if you talk to me, mother,' answered the girl. "'There, this hat must do.' She put on her gloves and went downstairs, followed by her mother, whose face wore an expression of uneasiness and surprise, as well it might. About the little parlor flitted with agitation the figure of Major Stroud, a shape of bristling whisker and wiry moustache, buttoned up in the form of a cask of ale in a frock-coat, and there was temper in the Indian duskiness of his eye. Miss Ford stood in the window. On the sideboard were displayed the wedding gifts. From Major and Mrs. Stroud, a silver tea service. From Mr. Featherbridge, a full-rigged ship under a glass shade. From Miss Giddens, a silver-mounted paper-knife. From Miss Ford, a set of silver salt-cellars. From Dr. Phillips, who could not come, the works of Shakespeare. From an old servant who was married, a biscuit-tin. From Mrs. Lane, a watch and chain, a diamond brooch and gold bracelet. The gifts of her husband, deceased. "'I am sorry to have kept you waiting, Major Stroud,' said Lucretia. "'I am afraid we shall be late as it is. Are we quite ready?' answered the Major." but the irritability went out of his eyes as he looked at the handsome girl, bowing to her and then smiling. The marriage was to take place at St. Stephen's Church, which is within a convenient walk of Chepstow Place. They might have driven, but they chose to walk. Lucretia walked with her mother, the Major and Miss Ford behind them. Mrs. Lane endeavored to get her daughter to talk, but the girl was extraordinarily silent. She would answer yes or no, or I don't know, languidly, abstractedly 
and with a visible and indeed pronounced inattention as though she was under a spell or as if she was in that sort of sleep in which the slumberer responds to questions without recollecting anything that was said when she awakens mrs lane was without much talent and therefore unequal to the establishment of any sort of satisfactory hypothesis even the intuition of the mother failed her that marvellous penetration which is nature's gift of the interpretation without mental effort in a foggy sort of way she desired to believe that her daughter was too high-spirited to appear to be fretting over what was not indeed to prove an immediate farewell to her mother and home but which was nevertheless the most absolute of all solutions of continuity a complete severance in effect though she might continue to dwell for a long time with mamma mrs lane remembered that she had felt this way herself when she was married when she wanted to cry whilst walking up the aisle on her father's arm and made strange faces under her veil to hide her emotion little did she foresee good woman the bolt that was to drop with a meteoric blast at her feet at the church door major stroud gave his arm to lucretia who took it with an exterior of frigid impassivity and together they approached the altar preceded by mrs lane and miss ford a few spectators spotted the sittings though all ends and parts of london swarm with business and hurry there are always plenty of people with leisure enough to make a crowd at a wedding even a walking and hatted and jacketed wedding is sufficiently extraordinary in an age when of course people are very seldom married very rarely born almost never buried to delay the yelp of the milkman to arrest the motion of the perambulator to retard the delivery of sir thomas's piece of salmon and to bewilder the blind man following his dog upon the pavement some figures were near the altar awaiting the arrival of the bride there was nobody answering to the appearance of old robin gray amongst them one was a tall deep-chested clean-shaven man with a straight nose standing out a little in a sort of seeking way greenish-gray eyes like salt water in soundings hair parted down the middle close-cropped like a soldier's a rather military-looking man on the whole with something marine in the motions of his body as though he was on board ship in a small seaway under thirty years of age his smile was slow in formation like that of an actor whose business it is to keep his face he had very good teeth which made his slow smile like the gliding of sunshine upon his countenance he was captain francis reynolds of the british merchant service and he was waiting near the altar in st stephen's church to be married to lucretia lane his best man stood near him mr william featherbridge a brown-eyed bearded person of twenty-eight sheep-like in steadfastness of gaze but with hints in his shape of considerable alertness at the call of duty captain reynolds as lucretia approached viewed her with a face moving with love and a smile eloquent of devotion and of manly affection she did not meet his eye her face was uninterpretable you could not have detected the least quiver of lip the faintest hint of agitation in any of the smallest working of the lineaments of her countenance the deuce alone knows how it was with her what she was about why she was there why being there she did not look the radiant maiden she did not bear the label of the rosy and modest virgin who was to find a blissful haven for life in the manly bosom alongside of her some who watched her put it down to nervousness some to that sort of conceit which makes people superior to any kind of situation they may happen to find themselves in some to acting none not even the mother not even the bridegroom who standing next to her looked at her marble-hard face a minute before the clergyman began to read a 
attributed the girl's behavior to the right cause, which was an impassioned sense of chastity dominating all other emotion, with a vigor of hysteria, yet without force of spirit in it to subdue her to the nun-like path she scarcely knew whether she wished to tread or not. She was in a state of mind that froze the sources of feeling, that closed the portals of every corridor of the heart and soul, that numbed the brain till volition was mere mechanism, till the will might have been compared to a dumb and stirless raven perched upon a bust, like that of Pallas in the poem. The clergyman began to read the service. The responses were scarcely whispered by Lucretia. The officiating minister, a curate, looked at her over his spectacles somewhat pointedly, then at the man whom he was transmuting into the golden state of husband. God what! In the vestry Captain Reynolds took his wife's hand, and, with a face full of love, sought to kiss her. But she shrank from his lips, almost shrank indeed from her mother's, and the name which she inscribed under that of her husband was scarcely legible for the tremors that ran through her hand. Captain Reynolds' face was clouded. His eyebrows were arched into a fixed expression of astonishment. He was profoundly confused, and looked about him with perplexity. In the vestry he received an inquiring stare from his best man, Mr. Featherbridge, and his answering glance was as blank as that of the gaze of a man in a black room. He offered his wife his arm, and she took it, and together they walked down the church to the door followed by Mrs. Lane. The others lingered to join them a little later on. The moment they gained the pavement, Lucretia withdrew her hand. "'Mrs. Lane,' said Captain Reynolds, "'Cretia will not speak to me. What is the matter? What have I done?' "'Lucretia,' exclaimed Mrs. Lane, who walked on her daughter's right, and who spoke in a voice that showed that tears were not far off, "'I cannot understand your conduct. Do you feel ill, my darling?' "'No.' "'Does your marriage make you unhappy?' said Captain Reynolds." She returned no answer, keeping her eyes obstinately bent upon the ground. "'It is such a wretched beginning,' said Mrs. Lane. "'I gave my sanction. I thought you both wanted this. Whatever is the cause of this change in you, Lucretia?' "'I can scarcely hear what you say with these omnibuses and cabs and boys whistling,' answered Lucretia. "'I do not think it very kind of you, I am sure,' said Mrs. Lane, in a whimpering way. It is very hard upon Frank. I could not have treated your father like this, certainly not at the very outset. It is incredible, she said, projecting her head past her daughter to peer at Reynolds. What will our friends think if you carry on like this? The husband of a few minutes was dredging his wife's face with his eyes, but could find no meaning in it outside its beauty pleading to him, no hint to convey a physical or spiritual explanation of the mystery of this sudden metamorphosis. He was bitterly concerned. Could it be possible that she was mad, that she had suddenly given light to a latent but pregnant seed of hereditary distemper, a strain in the family that had been concealed from him, a quality of intellectual structure of which the girl and the mother herself might have been ignorant as a part of the paternal or maternal legacy? He had kissed her often. She had never repulsed him. They had often sat together alone in the twilight hand in hand. A couple are seldom married without certain happenings having gone before. Memories of the tender green of the May of love were sweet and scented between them. It was not to be supposed that she could forget all of a sudden. She must remember everything, though she gave no visible expression to recollection by dramatization of her mood. He felt that she should know better than to act like this. She was now his wife. She could not get away from that. She had always been very willing to marry him. What, in the devil's name, had gone wrong with the fine creature? Yet never was his love more consuming than whilst he walked to Cheapstow Place with the beautiful, chaste, animated statue he had wedded. 
The moment the house door was opened, Lucretia passed in, ran upstairs to her bedroom, and locked the door. Captain Reynolds and Mrs. Lane walked into the parlor where a hired waiter was trimming the refreshments. Cakes, ices, chicken, sandwiches, fruit, jellies, and so on, with champagne. "'Doesn't she mean to return, do you think?' said Reynolds. "'Oh, dear, her conduct is most extravagant and unintelligible. She ought to be in the drawing-room to receive our guests. I haven't the least idea what to do.' And the eyes of the neat, comely little gentlewoman fairly streamed. "'It must be a passing fit,' said Reynolds, in a low voice, frowning and tapping the floor from the heel with the toe of one boot. "'It may be a matter for a doctor.' "'I'll go upstairs and see what she means to do,' said Mrs. Lane. "'Stay in the drawing-room, Frank. If she keeps on like this, some excuse must be made. We must say that she's ill. But, oh, how silly of her, and what an awful position to place us in!' and she trudged upstairs to her daughter's bedroom, whilst Frank went to the floor above where the drawing-room was. "'Who's there?' exclaimed the voice of Lucretia. "'It's I, your mother,' answered Mrs. Lane, talking at the door-handle which she had turned without producing further consequences. "'For goodness' sake, unlock the door and let me in, that we may talk rationally. There is yet time. The people haven't arrived, though they are coming.' "'I don't mean to live with Captain Reynolds,' said the voice of Lucretia. A pause followed this terrific remark. The mother scarcely seemed to hear, or hearing, to understand. The black bonnet with the white feathers swayed from side to side like the head of a listening hen. "'What?' then gasped Mrs. Lane, and seizing the handle of the door with both hands, she shook it as though she had got hold of her daughter, crying, "'Let me in! How dare you behave like this, miss!' forgetting that the miss was now Mrs. "'Do you want to break my heart? Open this door, Lucretia!' I don't intend to live with Captain Reynolds, said the lady inside, speaking with such deliberation that there was the interval of a pulse at least between the dropping of every syllable. Now, this girl had sanctioned and expressed delight in Reynolds' arrangements for them after marriage. They were to take a run to Edinburgh and the North for a week or so, and then the bride would return to her mother and live with her until her husband's return. "'Why don't you come out and join Frank and me, and behave yourself properly?' cried Mrs. Lane. No answer was returned. Captain Reynolds, on the lower platform, came on to the landing to listen. When, as he swiftly did, he discovered that Lucretia did not answer her mother, he called out in a loud, stern sea-voice, "'She's my wife, Mrs. Lane. She has no right to withdraw herself from me. If she will not open the door, I can easily put my shoulder against it.' The house was small, and the captain's voice very filling, and the hired waiter stood half in and half out of the parlor door with his left ear cocked upwards, and a grin of astonishment on his face, while the housemaid, with a nosegay in her bosom, listened at the front of the staircase. Lucretia could not fail to hear Frank's voice. She exclaimed from her bed, on which she had seated herself, "'You may tell him that if he attempts to force, I will swallow this bottle of poison I am holding.' Mrs. Lane shrieked. At that moment the hall bell rang, and the house door was hammered upon. With the echo of her shriek, as it might seem, on the expression of her face, poor Mrs. Lane went downstairs, and with a toss of both hands cried, "'I can do nothing with her. She threatens to poison herself if you approach her.' "'Is it not a case for a doctor?' said Captain Reynolds. "'Shall I go for Dr. Phillips, and explain matters, and bring him round?' "'Dr. Phillips can't help us,' moaned Mrs. Lane. "'If I can't influence her.' How should Dr. Phillips? 
"'Major and Mrs. Stroud,' said the housemaid, and they entered and were quickly followed by others of the invited. The curate who had officiated, Miss Giddens, Miss Ford, Mr. Featherbridge, and one or two more. The major was a little man who asked questions. Conversation with him consisted of a series of interrogatories. He was a Paul Pry, always hoping, without saying so, that he didn't intrude, and intruding to a degree that he was often offensive. He rather relished the misfortunes of others. He was one of those people who, according to the French cynic, find something that does not displease them in Les Mans des Autres. This major, with all the rest, must instantly have seen there was trouble in the little house, and so, consistently with his nature, he went to work to ask questions. "'Where is Mrs. Reynolds?' he inquired, rolling his eyes over the room, as though he expected to see her shape herself out of a cabinet or an armchair. "'She's not very well, Major,' responded Mrs. Lane, discovering the greatest disorder of spirits, sincere uneasiness, and much misery by her manner. "'Not well?' cried the Major. "'Why, she was quite well ten minutes ago.' "'People sometimes fall ill in one minute,' said Mr. Featherbridge. "'What can be the matter?' whispered Miss Giddens to Miss Ford. She was very singular before she went to church, and very remarkable during the service, was the reply faintly delivered. I am afraid we intrude, said Mrs. Stroud. Can I be of any service? asked the curate, who, stepping close to Mrs. Lane, added in her ear, I did observe a strange constraint in your daughter's manner at the altar, which made me fear she was not quite happy at heart. She refuses to live with her husband, said Mrs. Lane, in a ghastly whisper. The curate, who was blue about the upper lip and cheeks, and had a face like a beardless saint without a halo in a church window, composed his face into the exact posture of a whistle. The expression arrested the eye of the major, who fearlessly took a step towards the pair. "'Now what is all this about?' said he. "'Mrs. Lane, I plead the privilege of a friend. At your request I gave your daughter away. Why is she not here?' The poor woman, looking at him under her white feathers, seemed to crack nuts, and rather spelt than pronounced the words. She declines to live with Frank. Oh, that's all damned nonsense, burst out the Major. She is legally compelled to live with him. What's made her change her mind? They seem so very much in love. I thought she was deuced cold during the service. Where is she? Shall I go and talk to her? I'm not a man to stand any tomfoolery. If she were my daughter, she'd either favor me with a very complete explanation, or shall I go and see her? All this he exclaimed in so loud a voice that the whole room was in the secret, and many looks were exchanged. I am truly sorry, dear Mrs. Lane, said Mrs. Stroud, very kindly. Our presence can only be an intrusion under the circumstances. I am awfully sorry, said Mrs. Ford, going up to the widow with her hand extended. But you'll find she'll come round. It's mere petulance, too ridiculous in a girl that's just gone through the ceremony to be regarded seriously. Do, please, take some refreshments before you go, sobbed Mrs. Lane. In ten minutes everybody had cleared out, save Captain Reynolds and his best man, Mr. Featherbridge. Mrs. Lane and these two gentlemen sat staring into vacancy. Said Featherbridge, breaking the silence, I have often thought that marriage is like the great sea serpent. When it's not seen, it's believed in, and when it is seen, it's not believed in. I'll go up and see her, cried Captain Reynolds, starting from his chair. No, exclaimed Mrs. Lane, also starting from her chair. She has a bottle of poison. She will drink it. I know she will, if you attempt to force by thrusting against the door, or even talk threateningly to her. 
I beg pardon, Captain, said Mr. Featherbridge, with something of the deference of an officer to his skipper, but may I make a suggestion? Suppose you leave Mrs. Reynolds for the day, and call to-morrow and see how things are going. It's just what I could wish, exclaimed Mrs. Lane. It's the advice I would give you, Frank. In the mood she is in, nothing can be done, I am sure. Well, you may be right, said the unfortunate husband slowly, and gazing with a little bewilderment round the walls much as he had looked in the vestry. It's a violent, strange change, something quite outside any bearings I can take. Could any girl have been more loving? I suppose people can have fits of mind just as they have fits of the body. This seems a fit of the mind, as if it was epilepsy, and she had fallen on the floor with a shriek or two, insensible. So much the more reason for giving her time, then, sir, said Featherbridge. Just so, said Mrs. Lane. A night's rest and reflection may work wonders, and I am here to reason with her. Is there a hotel in the neighborhood? asked the captain. Yes, quite close, in Prince's Square, replied Mrs. Lane. They've let my diggings, or I should return, said Captain Reynolds. Why, he continued, pulling out his watch, we ought to be in a cab going to the station for Scotland. Well, till tomorrow, till tomorrow. He sighed and frowned and abruptly left the room, unwilling that his face should be seen. Mr. Featherbridge shook hands with sympathetic ardency with poor Mrs. Lane and followed Captain Reynolds out of the house. Mrs. Lane went to her bedroom to remove her bonnet and cape and put on her cap, and then went upstairs to her daughter. Who's there? Your mother. What do you want, mother? Frank and Mr. Featherbridge have left the house. You can open the door, said Mrs. Lane. On this the door was unlocked, and the mother entered. Scarcely, however, could she command her faculties to address her daughter when the housemaid arrived. The waiter wants to know, please, if he's to remain. Give him this half-sovereign and send him away, said Mrs. Lane, pulling out her purse. Lucretia had removed her hat and jacket and stood with her hand upon the toilet table looking at her mother. Her hair seemed to glow as though there was sunshine in the room. It would be absurd to say that her dark eyes shone with the fire of resolution that was like wrath, because the eyes do not change. It is the eyelids and eyebrows which dramatize those motions of spirit which the eyes themselves are believed to express. If this were not so, the actress's face would be a very imperfect representation of the part she takes. There was certain nobleness and dignity in Lucretia's bearing, which was owing to a sense of supernatural triumph of chastity, of a conquest of virtue by something even higher than virtue. As the cold star is more exalted than the lonely peak, moon-like with virgin snow, that points to it at some prodigious mountain altitude. Frank has left, began Mrs. Lane. I don't want to hear his name mentioned, interrupted Lucretia. The mother strained her eyes at her daughter's face. She could find nothing to hint an insanity, not the dimmest monition of aberration. She was as she had always been, saving that now she had taken to herself a stateliness of demeanor, an importance, and even pomp of bearing, lofty and victorious as though her soul was swelled with exultation over the issue of her extraordinary battle. "'Why did you go through the service, Lucretia?' asked her mother, seating herself. "'I felt the change coming over me whilst I was dressing,' answered the young wife. "'Mother, it was agony. I had not the courage to declare to myself I would not marry him. I ought to have had the courage. I can never live with him. But you'll wear his ring?' "'Oh, yes. I don't mean to be faithless to myself. I know what I am, and how I intend to remain. How we shall be talked about!' What is the value of the opinion of a few handfuls of dust in skirts or frock-coats? I know that I have acted with sickening stupidity, but that is my concern. I am still queen of myself, and, slowly and deliberately, 
I do not mean to live with Captain Reynolds. A gleam of good sense at this moment irradiated the darksome cells of Mrs. Lane's brain. What could be more transparent than that her daughter was in no mood to be reasoned with? That the application of the remedial drug in her condition of mental sickness was certain to injure her and not benefit her. She might be managed with patience. She must be allowed time for reflection. You may soften a tough steak by beating it, but you shall not mend a broken leg with a mustard leaf. Mrs. Lane, influenced by good sense, quitted her daughter and went downstairs to find that five pounds worth of refreshments had been left on her hands, untasted by, God help her, the wedding guests. End of chapter 1 Recording by Patty Cunningham